And he does it through the power of his word. Um, if you can open with me to Psalm 51. If you need a Bible, will you please raise your hand? If you could raise your hand high. And we'll wait till everyone gets a Bible. Psalm 51, I think that that may be on page 474, is that correct? Okay, 474. Psalm 51. And God's holy, inspired, infallible word reads... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words. And blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud. Of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your word says that this is the one to whom I will look. He who is broken and contrite in spirit 
the one who trembles at your word. A broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. You are pleased with those who humble themselves before you. Oh God, would you help us to humble ourselves under your holy word this morning? Would you open our ears, Father, to hear your truth? Would you remove the distractions from our mind? Many of us have came in this morning distracted by so many different things. Father, I pray that you would remove those distractions and help us to hear your word with clarity, with a pure devotion to your word. Lord, your word, as Tim said and as your word says, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh God, would you work by the power of your spirit through your word this morning and work in our hearts this morning and do a work that only you can do. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction of sin, I ask that you would also bring encouragement through your word. I pray that you would lift up the downcasts. And I also pray that you would draw the sinner who doesn't know you, the unbeliever, to yourself. Would you open the eyes of their heart to see you and to embrace your son as Savior? Oh God. Please pour out your spirit today upon us and help us to rejoice in your goodness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you notice at the very beginning of Psalm 51, there's a title. There's a title right before verse 1. And it reads this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, meaning after he had had sex with Bathsheba. To understand Psalm 51, we have to understand the background. And we can find the background to Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. If you would like to, you could turn there with me, but I'm not going to read all of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I'm just going to kind of give you a little a little overview of what was going on. You'll notice in the very beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11 that David is chilling on his couch. <laughs> chilling on his couch, maxing and relaxing. Then David gets off his couch and he's walking around. Next thing you know, he looks out of a window And his eyes glance upon a woman who's bathing on top of a roof openly, and her name is Bathsheba. His eyes look and see this woman, and automatically there's lust of the eye. It starts to fill David's heart. Before I even mention that, uh, the Bible talks about how David should have been out at war. But he's actually chilling in the crib, maxing and relaxing. The sin first started with idleness. And then with him being idle, not having anything really to do, he then walks over, looks out a window, sees Bathsheba, and then lust fills his heart. He then sends for Bathsheba to come. Bathsheba is married to another man who is Uriah, 
But David doesn't care. He wants what he wants. And then Bathsheba comes and David ends up having sex with her. Bathsheba sends word back that she's pregnant. David's like, man, what am I supposed to do? So what David does is he calls her husband Uriah back from the battlefield. Her husband who was out on the battlefield at war where David should have been. And basically he tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that he can cover it up when the baby comes like it's his. Uriah comes, and Uriah is so dedicated to uh, the men on the battlefield, and he's so loyal to them that he refuses to sleep with his wife at that time. Because he's like, man, how can I sleep with my wife in all this comfort when they're out on the battlefield? So David goes on to say, you know what? Why don't I invite him over for dinner? And he even tries to get him drunk. He's hoping then that with him getting drunk, maybe he'll go and sleep with his wife. But even then, Uriah is so loyal and so faithful that he refuses to lay with his wife. Because he doesn't want to be found laying with his wife while his boys are on the battlefield. So David says, all right, what I want you to do, he talks to some of his boys. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to send Uriah back on the battlefield, on the front line. And when Uriah gets on the front line, I want you to draw back so that they can strike him down. And that's exactly what he does. He, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, on the front line. Uh, Uriah's boys draw back and they strike Uriah down and they kill him. Here it is, you have David's sin that went from idleness to lust of the eye, to him inviting this woman over that he saw, who was married, he sleeps with her, and then he lies to cover it up, and then after that, he murders this man. If somebody would have came to David and would have said, do you know that you're going to murder someone in cold blood one day? He probably would have said, yeah, right, no way. But sin is a slow fade. Anthony Carter preached a phenomenal message on David and Bathsheba. And he says this about sin. Sin takes you deeper than you want to go. And keeps you longer than you want to stay. Sin is not your friend. It blinds you. And you find yourself compromising here and there and doing a little bit here. And then next thing you know, you find yourself in a pool of sin that you never, ever thought you would be in. But sin has that tendency to deceive because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So now when we come back to Psalm 51, it gives us more of an understanding of what's going on here. Because if you look at 2 Samuel, going uh, back to 2 Samuel in chapter 12, right after David commits this, all these sins, he tries to hide his sin. And in verse 12, I mean chapter 12, uh, a prophet named Nathan comes to him. And he starts telling him this parable about this rich man and this poor man. And he starts explaining these injustices that were going on. Um, and David hears it. He hears of the injustice. And he's like, man... That man should die. And the prophet Nathan says, you're the man. You're the one who, are who has done this evil thing. You're the one who has sinned. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, it reads this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became 
his wife. He then marries her. And bore him a son. Listen to this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was displeased. And then in verse 12, starting at verse 10, you see Nathan say to him, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan led the house, left the house. So the child that they had as uh, a result of David's sin dies, and, and this shows that sin has consequences. So here it is. David is hearing all these things, and now it makes sense when you come to Psalm 51 now, and you hear him say in the very beginning, have mercy on me. O oh God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, the first thing I want to point out from these verses is David's cry and confession. He says, have mercy on me, me. He's not blaming anyone else. He's, he's acknowledging that he's the one who has sinned. It's not like um, Adam in the garden where he's like, God, I did this because of the woman you gave me. No. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. This is my transgression, God. Have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my, my iniquity and cleanse me. God from my sin. He's not blaming other people. He's, he's taken responsibility for his own sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Back to verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Lord, have mercy on me according to this steadfast, unchanging love, Lord. Pour out that type of mercy upon me, this, this abundant mercy. I need that mercy, God, and blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. I love to take my kids out to the park. We have a great time. And my kids, when they're playing in the dirt, they just don't play in the dirt, but they like to get in the dirt and roll in the dirt. And, and Grace will start rolling in the dirt. Judah looks at his older sister, and he starts rolling in the dirt. And all I can think about is when we get home, we got to make sure that we wash their clothes thoroughly. We have a washing machine that goes from normal to heavy, and we got to put it in heavy because we know that their clothes needs to be washed thoroughly. Well, David doesn't need garments washed. 
He doesn't need clothes washed. David needs his soul washed. And he needs his soul washed thoroughly from his iniquity, from his sin. And he says, cleanse me of my sin, God. Clean me, Lord. I've done evil in your sight. Verse 3, back to verse 3. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. It's kind of like walking through a mirror maze. And everywhere you look, you see your reflection. You're walking and you just see it everywhere you go. David is saying, my sin is ever before me. I can't get it out of my head. I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. When I look in Bathsheba's eyes, I'm reminded of Uriah who I murdered. It's constantly before me. I can't seem to escape it. I can't get this out of my head. And then verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When we sin against people, the truth is, ultimately, we're sinning against God. It's true that he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, the baby that was born and died. He sinned against the baby. He sinned against the people he was leading. He sinned against his own family. But ultimately, he had sinned against God. And he realizes that against you and you only have I sent and done what is evil in your sight. In your sight. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says this. That all of us are naked and exposed before God. Before the eyes of the Lord. Who we must give an account. God sees everything. And every last one of us are naked and exposed before God. We can't hide from him. He sees everything. He looks through buildings. He's able to see what goes on in our home when no one else sees. And we're naked and exposed before him. And we're going to have to give an account. David is saying, I've done this evil in your sight. You've seen it. So that, and he says, Lord, you will be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David understands that if God sent him to hell, that he would be just in doing so. He would be just in doing so. Verse 5, he says, behold... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is acknowledging here that he has a sin nature. And he's acknowledging that he was born in sin. But he's not using his sin nature as an excuse. Author C. Clark comments this, quote, Modern theologians hate verse 5. They like to talk about God in man instead of the sin in man. The source of sin is in our souls, not in our surroundings. End of quote. John Phillips goes on to say of this verse, quote, David was not pleading inbred sin as an excuse. True, he was a sinner by birth, but he was also a sinner by choice. He was asking God to take this fact into account when passing final sentence against him. 
David was like, man, take into account, account that I'm a sinful creature. I'm not using this as an excuse, but I got a sinful nature. But I'm not using that as an excuse for my sin. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God delights in truth in the inward being. God is not impressed with surface religion. Many of you could even testify of being baptized and still being unconverted. There's many who can testify of even being a part of a church as a member, but they were still unconverted. You have a lot of people who are religious on the outside, but not truly changed on the inside. God delights in truth in the inward being, a true transformation, a true change that only he can do. Only he can do by the power of his Holy Spirit. The second thing I want to point out is David's cleansing and restoration. And and before going there, I want to say this. A lot of times when we have sin that has not been confessed, um, it's because we're, we're trying to hold on to our reputation. We're afraid that if I, if I say this, what will people think about me? So we don't, we don't confess it. We walk around and, and hide it and suppress it. But let me say this. Don't allow a false reputation to keep you from repentance and getting your heart right with God. Don't allow that. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Point two, David's cleansing and restoration. He says, purge me, meaning purify. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, in John Phillips' commentary series on the book of Psalms, he says this, David felt contaminated. He knew of no agent on earth that could cleanse his sin-stained soul. There was no ritual, no religion, No resolve which would meet this need. He was vile, and he knew it. He knew it. He wanted to be purged with hyssop. This is a figurative desire borrowed from the ceremonies of the Mosaic law. The hyssop, a common Palestinian herb sprouted on walls. It was used as a sprinkler in various ceremonial cleanings of the leper. The psalmist prayed for some cleansing which would do far which would do for his soul what the hyssop did ceremonially for the leper. He wanted God to deal with his defilement. He could stand his filth no more. End of quote. He's like, Lord, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, Lord, and I'll be whiter than snow. I need you to do this, God. I can't do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. Verse 8. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness, excuse me. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Anybody ever broken a bone in here? Yeah, broken a bone. When you break a bone, it hurts, right? It does, right? It hurts bad. I remember when I broke my bone, man, it was like pain was just shooting up my nerves. 
He's like, let me hear, let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God breaks us so he can heal us. He breaks us so he can shape us. And David is saying, allow this brokenness to cause me to rejoice. Allow this brokenness to cause me to truly be healed. Allow this brokenness to change me. Lord, break me down if you need to, because I need it so that I can truly rejoice. I don't want to live my life as a hypocrite. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. He's like, Lord, I know that you see everything that's going on in my life, but would you please hide your face from that? Please, Lord, hide your face from from my iniquities. Blot out, blot out, Lord, uh, my iniquities. Blot out my sins, God. Would you please do that? In verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You must do it. I can't create in me a clean heart, O God. I can't change myself. Many of you know you cannot change yourself. I know that I cannot change myself. Only one can change us. Only one can create in us a clean heart, and that is God. And he's saying, God, would you create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit? Many scholars have said that the word create here is the same word as the word create in Genesis 1.1. When the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when he says, create in me a clean heart, he's like, God, you must do something new. I just don't want my old heart. I need you to create in me a new one. And only you can do that supernaturally by your power. Oh, God, intervene in my life. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Many people say that when he was saying, take not the Holy Spirit away from me, he was talking about some type of kingly anointing. I don't know if I agree with that. I believe what's going on here is David is saying, cast me not away from your presence. I believe in his mind, he's, he's, he's thinking that, man, what I have done is so vile and so corrupt. I'm asking you, God, please don't cast me away from your presence. That would be the worst thing ever. That would be the worst. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. I want to make it very clear that believers cannot lose their salvation. But if you have ever been in sin so deep, it has crossed your mind at times where you're wondering, man, am I truly a believer? David is like, man, don't, don't allow this to prove to be true, meaning me continuing in this rebellion, proving that I'm not really yours. No, God. No, Lord. Please. Please cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Confirm that I'm truly yours. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I like that. It doesn't say my salvation. He says of your salvation, which you have given to me. And uphold me with a willing spirit. David didn't lose his salvation, but he did lose the joy of his salvation. Sin has a way of making you depressed. Sin has a way of making you joyless. Sin has a way of making you uh, feel like, man, that was a bad day yesterday. This is a bad day today. Next day is probably going to be bad because sin makes you depressed. David is like, God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. He's like, uphold me, restrain me. Don't allow me to continue in this sin. I don't want to go back to this. Would you restrain me, uphold me, and keep me from this thing? The last thing I want to point out is 
the lessons David learned from all of this. So, David, you went through all of this. What did you learn? What did you learn, David? He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Lord, if you created me a clean heart, if you restore me, Father, if you do these things, Lord, I'll teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you, God. Oh, that's a good motivation, Lord. That's a good motivation. Listen. Only God can take our sinful past and use it for good in order to instruct others. <laughs> Let me say that again. Only God can take our sinful past and use it for good to instruct sinners, to instruct others. There's so many people who have fallen into deep sin and think that they cannot be used anymore by the Lord. That is a lie. God loves to use broken people. And he loves making beauty out of ashes. It doesn't matter what you have done in your life. He is a restorer. And he doesn't just restore you, but he uses you. David says... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He's like, Lord, use me, use me to convert people to you. I know I messed up, but at least allow out of my life to come this result of people turning to you as a result of my sin. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that when you have gone through certain things in your life, it really equips you to counsel others who are in it presently? There's something about when someone's able to say to you, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I fell doing that same exact thing, but God restored me. God cured me of my sin sickness. I know a Savior who's able to reach down to the filthiest grime and pull us out. And he can do it for you. People who have been through hard things in life make some of the best counselors. Because when God pulls them out of that, they're then able to say, go this way. Don't do that. Don't, qu don't click that mouse on that. Don't be found alone with just you and the one you're dating. There's no account of, don't do that. I know where that leads. Don't do that. Oh, pastor, when people compliment you, don't take the credit for yourself. I know where that leads. Humility, being brought down, pride will destroy you. There's many who can instruct people because of what they've been through. And David's like, I'm not just content with being restored. I want to preach your word to others. Verse 13, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your praise. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. When we're in sin, it's hard to praise God. David is like, man, open Open my lips and my mouth, and I will declare your praise. Deliver me from this blood guiltiness, the sin against your eye. Deliver me from that and set me free so I can praise your name. Many of you know you've come into church before, and maybe you're battling with something, and it's hard to lift your hands because you're so burdened with guilt. David is saying, set me free from that so that I can open my mouth with praise. I want to tell people about who you are. I want to sing. I want to lift my hands with freedom. Lord, would you please enable me to do that? Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
will declare how glorious you are, how wonderful you are. You're the beginning and the end. You're the alpha and the omega. Hallelujah, Father. You are incredible. There is no one like the Lord. Oh, God, open my lips to declare your praise. Verse 16, this is something David learned. He learned that God will not delight in sacrifice. And he says, if that was the case, I would give it. He says, you will not be pleased with burnt offerings. You're not going to be pleased with a burnt offering. His sin is so deep where he's like, there's no way that the blood of a goat or a bull is going to be sufficient. There's no way you'll be pleased with that to totally wipe away my sin. And then you read in Hebrews chapter 10, if you could just turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll wait till you get there. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 17, we read this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is possible for the blood of bulls and goats, for, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Sounds very similar to the verse we just read in Psalm 51. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure Desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering. Of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from the time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness with us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put 
my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will make, I'm sorry, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. David knew that there had to be a sacrifice that was more sufficient than the blood of bulls and goats. And he was believing in the Messiah who would come. The one who is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. (laughs) The Lamb who would be slaughtered and slain so that he could be righteous. One of the things that bugged me out as I was reading through all of this and studying was a verse that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. I'm not sure if you caught it, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it says this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wait a minute. David says, I sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord's put away your sin. And you shall not die. How's that happen? How's that happen? The answer's found in Romans 3. Romans 3. Romans 3, 24 and 25 reads this. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how was it possible? Because David was looking towards the son of God who would come, who would be crucified and slaughtered who God crushed, who God, because he crushed his son, and his son bore the sins of David, Abraham, Noah, (laughs) Isaiah, Jeremiah, you keep going down the line. Me, you, because he bore those sins inside his body, Christ, and was crushed on the cross, God was just. He didn't sweep David's sins under the rug or anyone's sins under the rug. He targeted his just wrath towards his son, Jesus Christ, and crushed him. And that's why he's just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Every single sin that David committed, murder, adultery, lying, Christ was crushed for that. Abraham, Noah, whoever, whatever sins, Christ was crushed for that. My sin, if you repented and trusted in Christ, your sin, Christ was crushed. And God is just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The reason why God was able to show mercy to David is because he didn't show mercy to his son on the cross. The reason why he was able to wash him of his iniquity and cleanse him from his sin is because Jesus Christ was pierced for our iniquities. Pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Nails Rammed into his hands 
into his feet, crown of thorns, blood everywhere to wash away the vilest sinners. And then the righteous wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so that it wouldn't be poured out upon David, so that it wouldn't be poured out upon you, so that it's not going to be poured out on me. And with confidence, we can walk knowing that we are declared righteous in front of God because of what Christ has done. Do you have that assurance today? You may say, I'm too sinful. David murdered someone, stole a man's wife, slept with his wife. There's all kinds of things he has done, but God was able to make David righteous. He can make you righteous. But the Bible says that you must turn from your sin, repent of your sin, turn from it, and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose. He defeated death's sin in the grave. That's my Savior. Many of you can say, that's your Savior. Do you know him today? I pray if you don't that you would, pray, you would repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Verse 17. David learned that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The Bible says this. This is the one to whom I will Look, he who is broken and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, the one who sees his need. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro, beholding good and evil. He sees all things, but there's something that gets his attention. And it's the ones who are broken and contrite, the humble, the one that see their need for him. Do you see your need for Christ this morning? I'm not saying that just to unbelievers, but believers, do you see your constant need for him? Oh, we need him. And we need to stay broken and contrite before him. And when we're prideful, we must ask that he would help us return back to the place of being humble, broken, and contrite before him. Verse 18 and 19. It says, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Be, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered to you. Verse 18, he's basically saying, when he says, do good to Zion, he's like, man, don't allow my sin, Lord, to affect everyone else. Don't allow my sin to affect everyone else. I just want to say this in closing. Some of you may be wrestling with guilt. Maybe there's things in your life that you have repented of, but it still kind of haunts you. I just want to remind you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, God is looking upon you right now, and he sees perfection. Even in your current state, he sees perfection. That's what our position is in Jesus before him. Perfection. Just let that sit for a minute as you walk out of here. For those who are in Jesus... We are perfect in God's sight because of Christ. No other religion offers that. Only the gospel. The last thing I want to say is this, and it's more so a question. Are you living currently, right now, in unrepentant, unconfessed sin? Just think for a minute. Is there anything in my life 
that I need to confess before God. Because I can assure you that if you are, there's no joy in that type of life. I can assure that you're really depressed. But I can also assure that if you confess your sin and turn to Christ, that he will wash you as white as snow. He will welcome you. He will hug you and embrace you with his love. And there will be no condemnation in his presence, only forgiveness. I want to read this in closing. This is from 1 John chapter 1. Just listen. 1 John chapter 1. You may have memorized this. Maybe you know this verse well. But I'm asking that you would just really listen and ask... Am I walking in this? This is the message we have heard. This is verse 5, chapter 1, 1 John. From him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not some sin, all sin. Not 75% of our sin, all sin. Not 85, not 99%, but all sin. Every last bit of it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness not some, all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I just want you to think about that as we get ready to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is true that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh, Father, would you create in us a clean heart and renew in us a right spirit, O oh God? I pray that it would be said of all of us as members of ARC that we do not hold up a false reputation over repentance and confession of sin. That we would not allow a false reputation to keep us from repenting and trusting in you and coming into the light with our sins. Lord, drive us to be accountable with brothers and sisters. Lord, drive us, God, to be a transparent church. Drive us, God, to really strive for holiness and righteousness. And when we fall, God, may we be reminded that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who presents us blameless. God, we don't have any righteousness in ourselves. Our righteousness is through Christ and Christ alone. Whenever we live in sin and darkness, we're saying that we have a righteousness that's good enough to keep us pure. But when we come into the light and confess our sin, we're showing our need for a Savior. Oh God, would you make us a church that confesses sin and falls towards the cross?
a church that falls in your pool of grace provided for the sinner. Thank you, God, that you have made a way for us to be righteous before you in your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we fix our eyes upon Jesus consistently, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray this in the name of your matchless son, Jesus Christ. Amen.